podcast one production. After several near-death passenger experiences, I swore I would never drive in China again. Yet here I was in 2011, armed with a covetable Chinese driver's licence thanks to Mercedes-Benz and their World Fuel Cell Drive. I was tasked with driving a three-day journey from Xi'an to Beijing in a tiny B-class hatchback kitted out with a hydrogen fuel cell. Clearly, the car was regarded as basically a bomb on wheels by every Aussie journalist that turned down the gig. That's right, every one of my fellow journalists bailed on this trip because it was potentially so dangerous, but I never got the memo. Even the photographers stayed home. So I tucked myself into that little death trap with a stoic German engineer and a Chinese translator yelling instructions as I ducked and weaved a death dance through haphazard Chinese traffic. This was a trip I will always remember. Theoretically, the Chinese drive on the right-hand side, but in practice, the roads are a free-for-all. So I'd be smashing down a four-lane highway and a police car would come flying towards me on the wrong side of the road. Or I might encounter a horse-drawn cart trotting briskly at me around a bend. The entire time, I kept thinking of the hydrogen fuel tank under my seat and its potential to blow. After all, didn't hydrogen take down the Hindenburg Zeppelin? Actually, it didn't. The Hindenburg burnt its hydrogen in 60 seconds and diesel was the main culprit, but I only found that out later. On my first day, as we hurtled along a busy highway, the walkie-talkie blared and my engineer told me to slow right down and up ahead I saw the problem. The highway had literally split across its entire width and dropped a foot and several trucks were now on their sides blocking the road. Mercedes, meanwhile, had engineers diligently building a tiny ramp for my tiny hydrogen car to roll down and keep going to the next road step where we would refuel from the massive tanker full of compressed hydrogen that was following my journey. Refueling was quick, about half an hour, which gave me time to demo the outdoor gyms that the Chinese government has installed at every highway rest stop in an impressive attempt to make the entire population fitter, or at least those who travel. The range of the car was really impressive. It was around 400 kilometres between fills. We beetled along some insanely dangerous roads full of potholes, mad drivers, animals everywhere. But my German engineer quickly had me convinced that the woven carbon fibre fuel tank would never explode. Interestingly, if it did, the hydrogen would burn upwards rather than pulling on the ground and would dissipate much faster and with potentially less damage than a petrol explosion. So that was good to know. (laughs) Did it feel like the future? It was a crazy but obviously intentional juxtaposition between rundown rural areas of China, near anarchy on the roads, and fuel cell technology that, with the right refuelling distribution, could transform energy use in transport. It felt like I was at a really important crossroad. There's more than one way to fuel a car. We've spent a hundred years building a global economy around extracting, refining and distributing petrol to fuel the billion-plus passenger vehicles that already exist. But the next billion cars, they might be completely different. And that will change everything. Not just about cars, but our economics, our environment, even our politics. 
Mark Pesci opens this episode with an epic tour through the history and likely future of electric vehicles. I'll follow that with a deeper look into hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, because the future isn't about one fuel or one power source. Finally, special correspondent Drew Smith speaks with Mate Rimac, one of the leading designers of electric vehicles and the systems that power them. Fuels of the future. That's the question we're powering towards at full speed on this episode of The Next Billion Cars. In the beginning, and that's almost 150 years ago now, it wasn't exactly clear how we would power these newfangled automobiles. All of it relies on an engine, and an engine is any device that converts stored or potential energy into real or kinetic energy. Now, there are a lot of ways to store energy and a lot of ways to convert potential energy into kinetic energy. But conversions are never perfect. And that imperfection is almost always expressed as heat. Your engine heats up, not because it's converting petrol into mechanical energy, but because it's not perfect at doing that. And that wasted energy... That energy that doesn't help power the car forward, it gets turned into heat and that gets lost in the environment. Now, all of that was understood theoretically at the time the automobile was invented. And indeed, that's one of the reasons that Carl Benz could design an internal combustion engine in 1879 powered with petrol. And petrol was the natural solution because petrol has what they call a very high energy density. For a given volume of petrol, there's a lot of energy in it. And then Rudolf Diesel's eponymous engine the diesel engine, from 1892, that used kerosene. But the diesel engine's now been adapted to run on a wide range of hydrocarbons, including, most famously, used chip-frying oil. And then there's the Stanley Steamer. That's a line of automobiles produced from 1902 to 1924 by the Stanley Motor Car Company. They used petrol and kerosene, but they didn't use an internal combustion engine. Instead, the heat produced steam that generated pressure to drive the engine. So it's a steam engine. Now, if all of that sounds a bit complicated, keep in mind that early internal combustion engines weren't very efficient. They worked most of the time, but they converted only a fraction of the fuel into kinetic energy. Now, from the beginning, automakers considered ditching the engine altogether. The first electric vehicles, not really much more than toys, but they were vehicles. They go all the way back to 1827. But the first mass-produced electric automobiles, they go back to the beginning years of the last century with the Studebaker Electric and the Lerner Porsche. That's right, that's the same Porsche that went on to perfect the art of internal combustion. One of the major selling points of the electric vehicle back then was the clean nature of it, that there was no noise and there was no smoke, there was no pollution, adding to what was already very polluted urban environments at the turn of the last century. And there was a moment here, very early in the history of the automobile, when that could have become the leading reason for the adoption of electric vehicles. London had a fleet of electric buses that they hoped would be cleaner and more reliable than petrol vehicles. But, and here's the theme we'll come back to time and again as we look at electric vehicles. The Studebaker Electric 
and the Leonard Porsche and the London electric bus, none of them could hold enough charge to make them entirely viable. All of them used lead-acid batteries, and while they're reliable, they're not light, they're not cheap, they recharge very slowly. Or rather, if you charge a lead-acid battery too quickly, it generates quite a bit of hydrogen gas, which has a tendency to explode. But hydrogen isn't all bad. Control that explosion and you end up with hydrogen fuel cells, carefully mixing hydrogen with oxygen to create water and electricity. Now, those fuel cells have been around for 180 years, but fuel cells were big and bulky until NASA decided they needed hydrogen fuel cells to power the Gemini spacecraft. And so a few million dollars later, fuel cells were as small as you might need. They still weren't that cheap. But you think, well, now, petrol, electricity, fuel cells, that's pretty much the deal, right? Those are the options to fuel the next billion cars, and you'd be wrong. There's another way, and it's a gas. Compressed gas. Now, that's not new either. Cars have been running on compressed air for nearly a 100 years. It's the same principle as steam. As compressed air expands, it drives a motor. Now, that may sound unusual. It's not. In fact, compressed air engines are quite common in India, where they're favored for their inexpensive fuel and lack of pollution. So, why aren't we using them everywhere? Well, recharging a compressed air vehicle can be done at home, but like charging an electric vehicle at home, it can take several hours. And more significantly, cars designed for the Indian market, they don't need to meet the same safety standards as automobiles designed for international sales. So to date, no compressed air vehicle has ever passed a 100 kilometer per hour crash test. They've got traction within India's market, particularly for light commercial vehicles. But these compressed air vehicles have never gone global. Meanwhile, there's been a hundred years of research and refinement accelerated by oil shocks in 1973 and 1979 that have driven the development of ever more efficient internal combustion engines and ended up hamstringing the search for realistic alternatives to petrol. In the 1990s, General Motors developed a prototype electric vehicle, the EV1. GM only manufactured 1,100 of the cars across the five years they produced it. And because these were leased to drivers rather than owned, GM famously recalled each and every one and had them all crushed, which seemed to kill the electric car. But something else was happening, something GM hadn't planned on. Batteries were getting better, a lot better. A billion mobile phones were being manufactured every year by the early 2000s, each of them with their own high-power lithium battery. Lithium is an ideal material for a battery, both because it's the lightest metal and because it's relatively common. And the more lithium batteries we manufactured, the better we got at making them. Battery capacity is now increasing at 10% a year and has, for many years, doubling every seven years. GM's EV1 it used lead-acid batteries, the same technology as the Studebaker Electric, with all of those issues. A new approach was called for, and one that would be spearheaded by a young, 
headstrong tech billionaire. Y'all know who I'm talking about. Elon. The thing that I've learned in the six months that we've been researching the next billion cars is that there is a very deep love-hate relationship between car people and Tesla. They admit that without Tesla, we wouldn't be seeing the current renaissance in electric vehicles, but they still hate Tesla for breaking all the rules, for breaking every established precedent about car making, and for succeeding at doing it. I can't tell whether that's envy or it's just something else. Still, the key innovation for Tesla comes down to power storage, leveraging the billions of lithium-ion batteries manufactured for smartphones in an unexpected way. One pundit dubbed Tesla a smartphone with wheels, and that's more accurate than it sounds. It's the same basic power storage technology put to use in a different way. Tesla rewrote the future for electric vehicles. Overnight, EVs went from improbable to inevitable. That's quite a feat. And one that unleashed a huge wave of innovation, where Tesla led other automakers began to follow with their own electric vehicles. And with that change in mindset came the policy changes. Norway wants to hit 100% electric vehicles in 2025. And in 2018, nearly half the vehicle sales in Norway were for electric vehicles. They're well on the way. But Norway is tiny. China, the largest car market in the world, China expects to completely ban internal combustion vehicles by 2040 and will make sure that next year, in 2020, its consumers will purchase at least 2 million electric vehicles. And when that policy was announced, everything changed. Not only did the electric vehicle become an inevitability, it became a commercial imperative. Every major car company everywhere in the world has a fleet of electric vehicles planned. But that's not going to be the whole story. And to take it from here, and to take a look at why electric vehicles will never be the entire solution, let me hand the energy baton over to co-host Sally Deminks. An electric engine is powered by a battery that gets charged from the grid or off-grid if you have solar or a wind charging station. There's a reasonable argument that unless the electricity is made with green energy, electric engines are simply pushing the pollution back in the supply chain from the vehicle to the power station. Hydrogen also requires energy to be made and stored, so the same argument could be applied to hydrogen fuel cell cars. But hydrogen fuel cells have a couple of key advantages over electric engines, at least theoretically. A hydrogen fuel cell car also has an electric motor running the drivetrain, but a fuel cell generates electricity using the stored hydrogen via a chemical reaction. So the electricity is generated on the fly rather than being stored in a battery. The hydrogen fuel cell strips the electrons from the hydrogen to create electricity, and the only byproduct is water. Each fuel cell produces less than a volt of electricity, so the cells are stacked, giving car engineers some flexibility with how the car is packaged. While batteries are notoriously affected in performance and lifespan by extreme temperatures, hydrogen fuel cells generally are not. And hydrogen is renowned for having a range comparable to petrol-powered engines. So why does Elon Musk say hydrogen is an incredibly dumb car fuel? Well, Musk says hydrogen is an energy storage mechanism. It's not a source of energy. So you have to get that hydrogen from somewhere. 
If you get that hydrogen from water, it's an extremely inefficient energy process. If you, say, took a solar panel and used the energy from that to just charge a battery pack directly, compared to trying to split water, take the hydrogen, dump the oxygen, compress the hydrogen to extremely high pressure and put it in a car and run a fuel cell, Musk says, that's about half the efficiency. It's terrible. Why would you do that? It makes no sense. Well, as it turns out, it does make sense for some vehicles. Right now, hydrogen fuel cells are being trialled in trucks because electric engines don't have the charge to efficiently haul heavy loads any distance. The hydrogen used in those trucks is manufactured and stored using traditional fossil fuels. While NASA has developed regenerative fuel cell systems using solar power to split water into hydrogen for space travel, those systems are priced way out of the mass transport market, at least for now. So we have a fuel cell with range, power and zero emissions that can be pricey and energy consuming at the production and storage end with a tricky refueling structure versus a motor that has range limitations and temperature limitations, but can be charged at home with a solar panel. And I haven't even delved into new tech exploring fuel cells that run on carbon dioxide, which could completely reinvent the market again. This just gives us a little insight into the diverse future of fuel. When we come back from the break, Mate Rimac tells Drew a few home truths about the significance of electrification and what's really important for the industry right now. Welcome back to The Next Billion Cars, where we're exploring the future of the automotive powertrain. Now, as Mark pointed out earlier, battery electric vehicles have been around for a long, long time. So while the concept of electric propulsion is far from new, our ability to produce affordable electric cars with enough battery capacity to avoid range anxiety, that feeling that you're going to run out of battery before you get to your destination, has evolved really quickly over the past decade. The improvements in battery and motor technology has also made it much easier to create cars that are friendlier for the humans inside and not just the environment around them. Being the resident car designer on the next billion cars, this is what I want to explore next. Okay, get your tiny violins at the ready. Being a car designer is no walk in the park. Indeed, if car design was a sport, it would be one of the bloodiest around. The object of the game? Compromise. Between satisfying legislators, accountants and customers, producing a great-looking car is a task of Herculean effort. In this whole equation, however, the most significant thing designers have to grapple with is something called the package. All right, stop sniggering down the back. This is serious stuff. The package is essentially the definition of all the key dimensions of a vehicle, the architectural blueprint, if you will. It determines the space between the wheels, front to back and side to side, where the windows go, how high you sit off the ground, and thousands of other things. In essence, it's a box drawn by engineers into which designers have to project the art, craft, and emotion of creating something truly desirable. <gasps> Damn, wait, I forgot something. Or more precisely, some things. Within that box, drawn by engineers, no thinking outside it, we also have to fit an engine, a gearbox, and a fuel tank. Like I said, car design is a blood sport of compromise. So what has all this got to do with electrification? 
Well, us designers have been waiting for the day when we can create futuristic cars that look, well, futuristic. And you see, for a given number of kilowatts or horsepower, electric motors are way smaller than an equivalent internal combustion engine. And batteries, being made of small, interconnected cells, much like you'd find in your laptop, are much easier to shape around humans than a tank of highly flammable hydrocarbon. So electrification can free up lots of space in the package. This allows us to give customers useful new features like Tesla's frunk, a boot at the front of the car, or, in the case of the Rimatch C2 hypercar, a chassis that contains enough stored energy to enable a 0 to 100 km an hour time of 1.85 seconds. So it was with this sense of optimism and opportunity that I approached my interview with the man who led the creation of the C2, Marte Rimatch. He's the founder of Rimatch Automobili, electric hypercar Wunderkind and supplier to the stars, Aston Martin and Porsche among others, of state-of-the-art electrification technologies. I wanted to talk to him about how he was going to help my long-suffering design colleagues and our friends in engineering reach packaging nirvana. I started by asking Marte about the packaging advantages of his technology, but Marte had other ideas, not just for me, but for the entire industry. Well, to be honest, so going back 10 years, this is why I started the company, like to show that electric cars can be awesome, amazing, fast, exciting, sexy, beautiful, all of that that it weren't 10 years ago. And we pretty much showed that, but also the public opinion about electric cars changed mostly due to Tesla, but also other stuff like Formula E and our cars and everything else that's going on. So I think we have mastered that challenge. But to be honest, I, I'm not so, like... I don't think it's a big change, really. Like, uh, going from combustion engines to electric powertrains, it's a relatively small change. It's not really getting out of your comfort zone for anybody, not for the user, because the user still owns the car, the user still drives the car, uh, just they don't go to the to the uh, fuel uh, station, they just charge it somewhere at their house or the whatever. That's the only change, really, and the limited range. But it's a very, very small change. From the OEM perspective, it's the same stuff. They just have different suppliers. Instead of the gearbox, uh, an engine supplier or engine parts supplier, whatever, they now have the battery cell supplier, they have the inverter supplier, whatever. It didn't really change anything. The really big change is what people are discussing here today, and I think very few people get this really, is uh, how the mobility will change and the lives of people. It's not really just about this industry. It's not just how you get from point A to B, but I think it's really a very profound and big change that will have a deep impact on everybody's lives. And what I'm uh, often saying is, you know, we have a big parking lot in front of our company and we have this discussion about uh, this change. And when people ask me, like, when are all of these cars on the parking lot going to be electric? And I'm saying never. Like, they're now 98% gas power. We have a couple of electric cars that people use to get to work. And what I think we will see is that 10% of those of that parking lot will get electric and then the parking lot will disappear because people will, have, uh, will use autonomous cars, shared and so on. So electrification is nice and, and all that and it, ha- it makes a lot of sense from many perspectives, but it's a very incremental change. Okay, so at this point I was a little bit worried. It sounded like Marte 
the guy with the amazing electric hypercars, the guy helping major brands build their electric cars, was going to leave my petrol headmates out in the cold. So I asked him about his views on the user experience of riding in electric cars. We spent a lot of time on that and we have very interesting ideas. Uh, I think lots of people make a mistake thinking that cars will become a commodity in the future, that people will not care where they sit and spend their time. Like, if you look at the startups making autonomous cars designed from scratch, I, I have to say, like, sorry, but they have absolutely no idea what they're doing in many cases, because they are making trains with rubber wheels right. and ignoring the fact that people will still care, you know, about comfort and uh, features and uh, lots of other things. They're just trying to cram as many people into a given space as possible. It's kind of like what electric cars were 15 years ago because they were designed by people that don't like cars. Right. And, you know, they were just seeing it as an object that gets you from point A to point B. And we can see with Tesla's success that there has to be a sexiness and lifestyle connected to the product to make it successful. And I think that's... Like, I was speaking also to a lot of ride-hailing companies and they say the car will become a commodity. We don't care who makes the car, we don't give a shit. Uh, how it will look like and I'm like okay I think you are wrong but you know time will tell. So with people like Marte spearheading the change in propulsion technologies it seems like our desire for emotional connection to cars is in safe hands and we'll explore Marte's views on the future of performance cars in a future episode. But given that this episode is about some of the technologies we can expect to see in the next billion cars I asked Marte how he sees battery technology developing, especially in light of Tesla's mooted purchase of Maxwell Technologies. Now, they're specialists in the development of ultracapacitors. These are a different type of energy storage to traditional batteries, like lithium-ion, and can be better suited to the rapid charge and discharge cycles that occur with acceleration and when recovering energy from braking. You know, I have my little notebook from 10 years ago where I started to write everything down. And uh, when I look at that and the state of battery technology back then, the fundamentals didn't really change. And already back then we saw articles about um, solid state batteries, about lithium air batteries, about all the stuff that people are still talking about today. And I get, you know, people send, sending me links all the time. Why don't you use this battery that gets recharged in 30 seconds and stuff like that? But there are many qualities to a battery, uh, like energy density, power density, uh, cost, uh, cycle life, uh, shelf life, uh, you know, safety, lots of different aspects that are critical and like there is no silver bullet that improves everything. So every battery has some trade-offs and we don't really see anything big coming uh, in the near future. Maybe for some applications, yes, but like generally for what we do, I don't see it. I think there will be very incremental change in the fundamentals, so in the chemistries um, in the next decade or so. Uh, but let's see what will happen. Uh, I mean, there are also, you know, people are working on hydrogen, on uh, on uh, solid state and other, other things. So, um, but personally, I think that the lithium-ion technology is uh, the most mature and it will take a lot of time to replace that. Talking to Marte, it becomes clear that within the context of the automotive industry, electrification is actually a pretty incremental step and the real transformation is happening in how we think about vehicles, public, private, hydrogen, battery electric, internal combustion, as part of a much bigger and hopefully more holistically considered system. 
So how well-placed are the traditional car makers and suppliers when it comes to adapting to this massive change? I'll leave the last words to Marte. So uh, the industry is turning on its head and it's one of the biggest industries in the world and especially in Europe, a lot of people depend on that. So it's going to be very, very interesting. And uh, the scary thing is that there are lots of old people in the, uh, at the helms of those companies. I mean, they are not stupid. They know what they are doing. But uh, I think that Nokia also has a good management team. Uh, so, yeah, let, let's see. Let's see what happens. So if there's one thing that we've learned over the course of this episode, it's that there's going to be diversity in power sources over the course of the next billion cars. And I'm gonna jump in here with a point of view that may be a little unpopular with this crowd. And it's that fossil fuels are gonna be with us for quite some time. And they're getting better really fast. What do I mean by that? Well, Mazda is gonna be launching a compression ignition petrol engine this year, which is gonna offer diesel-like levels of fuel efficiency from a petrol car. We've got the Euro 6 diesels kind of coming on the market here in Europe at the moment, and they are now producing uh, nitrous oxide levels that are the lowest we've ever seen. So they are kind of becoming genuinely clean diesels. So, Mark, I'm going to throw this to you now. What's your point of view? I feel as though the biggest barrier to the accepting of electric vehicles broadly is range anxiety that people have, whether or not they're driving the vehicle for 20 kilometers a day or 2000 kilometers a day, that they have a feeling that there's not enough. And if there's not enough in the tank, they really start to feel like they've somehow put themselves in a dangerous position. And I mean, Sally, what do you, you know, you've recently had an experience of a bit of a road trip where you actually actually had that experience viscerally. Well, it's an interesting one because I was driving back from Tahoe. It's the mountains. It's about a four-hour drive, but if the pass closes, you can be stuck there hovering in traffic for up to eight hours till it opens again. There's a lot of snow at the moment. So I was looking around. I was in a petrol, a very efficient petrol-driven turbocharged whatever. Um, there were a couple of Teslas on the road. Now, I know that um, the Tesla can make it up to Tahoe, can make it on this four-hour two six-hour drive, um, but you have to have private charging up there. There's not a charging station, so that means these people have invested in the charger. But, you know, then you've got this thing where you're sitting there in sub-freezing temperature. You know that charge can be lost much faster in extreme temperatures. So on top of like looking at your charge and going, look, I've got this much range, you don't know how the climate is going to actually affect that. can be quite dramatic. You know, so I pondered as I waited for the road to open. I thought to myself, kind of happy I have gas in the tank right now, kind of happy I'm running on petrol because nothing's going to change. I'm looking at the trucks and thinking all of you should be on hydrogen. There's no reason not to be. Crazy. This is no fueling station, but there should be. Um, and looking around at the little EVs, the little cars, volts and things and thinking, oh, you poor little bugger, because who knows what's going to happen to you if you're stuck out here for another six hours. That was me. You know, I just thought, oh, this is pretty interesting. I'm looking around and thinking, hmm, there's something for everyone here. So, Sal, you touched on uh, another really interesting point there. As I was flying down to the Geneva Motor Show, uh, I was looking at a design review of Honda's e-prototype, which is an electric car that they're going to be launching in 2019. And the designer was talking about the fact that they really wanted to celebrate the charging point and they've put it up on the hood of the car and it really sticks out. And his justification for this was the fact that owners are going to be plugging their car in every single day. 
And I started thinking, this is an urban EV. I'm thinking about where I live in Sweden and I'm thinking about where all the infrastructure is to charge this car. And it just doesn't exist. It really doesn't exist at the moment. So I think that's something else that we're going to have to deal with over the course of the next billion cars. So there's really an interesting thing here because part of what we're asking is can the car makers afford this? And of course, we saw VW and Ford establish this alliance so that they can share some of the costs around electrification and building a new electric, basically, powertrain that's going to be shared across many different lines. But the question you're raising now is not just can the car makers afford the transition to electrification, but can car owners, can city can cities, can urban areas where there's density, but maybe not garages where people can actually power things privately and where we will need a lot of charging infrastructure that's at the street level so that it's accessible, but then also durable so that it can't be destroyed just by random acts of violence. Can we do this? Can we also address... That's a bit of a toss, isn't it? To say I'm going to put a PowerPoint on the snout of a car to remind you all that it's electric. When was the last car that went, oh, I'm really going to celebrate the fuel cap by putting some massive great thing on the schnoz of the car to just remind you that it's full of bloody petrol or diesel. I think that's so stupid. There's, I mean, this car's supposed to be um, awesome to drive, fantastically efficient. What? So you put a PowerPoint on the end, not to mention a heap of the new cars are doing those drive-on charging pads. So he's gone a bit analogue in my opinion. I mean, look, at uh, uh, you used to see the fuel tank in the middle of the rear of the car, sort of right above the exhaust, and we've migrated to the side. The last time anyone thought about a fuel tank was when the Pinto had them and they were exploding right back in the 1970s, because people don't think about the fuel cap. They don't think about the fuel tank. It's, it's not really something we think about with the experience. The energy density of petrol is so high that we get, again, both a very high gas mileage and very low refueling rates. Electricity, we have, we're getting two higher energy densities. There's no question. Hydrogen, we're getting two higher energy densities what we still don't have is the same level of energy density and we still don't have the same level of refueling infrastructure. My feeling is that the refueling infrastructure isn't as hard as it looks to us because we clearly built out a petrol infrastructure and that only took us sort of 20 years to build out a significant petrol infrastructure. Yeah, perhaps also that people aftermarket suppliers will start developing sort of uncorded ways to recharge the car. Like, you know, I got stuck in the car park of the ski resort the other day with a flat battery. And, you know, now when you get stuck with a flat battery, some genius in the car next door is bound to have one of those little gizmo portable batteries. They plug it in and in two seconds, you're all charged up again. So I suspect that aftermarket will come up with an uncorded way to recharge or at least give us enough funk in our recharge to get us to a place where we could charge. I mean, that seems sort of inevitable, doesn't it? We're not all going to be corded at night, tethered, I don't think. The thing you have in the boot of your Tesla is the thing that reboots your Tesla. <laughs> the frunk. It's actually in the frunk. <laughs> <laughs> all right. There's one other thing that is really interesting and it's the rise of what I'm calling the electro bikes. And of course, there's more than one thing here. But what had happened, and this happened literally within a space of weeks in Sydney, we've had a lot of bikers going around who are delivering meals to people. And you see them and they're on bikes and they've got this big backpack on. 
And someone pointed out to me that all of a sudden, I mean, literally all of a sudden, all of these bikes are now electric and they're all just whizzing by just very quietly. And we've gone into this very new wave of electric bikes. And that new wave has really only happened within the last six to 12 months. And it doesn't really matter where you are. This to me looks like disruption. This looks like the thing that at least in the urban core, people aren't going to need cars in the same way if they have reliable electric bicycles, electric tricycles, which can carry a passenger or carry a load. And even these amazing sort of uniball unicycles that I saw that kind of looked like a skateboard with a big fat wheel on it, which looked like a ton of fun, actually. You, so you're seeing all these different devices at very different price points that are being rapidly taken up. And if I'm a car maker trying to sell a car in a city, do I need to worry about these? Yes, absolutely. I think you do. And, you know, I speak as somebody who's currently working in the car industry and looking at these things and thinking, wow, what do these things mean for us? And there's a chap out there, Horace Didier, uh, you may know him as an Apple analyst, uh, but he's kind of laying claim to the term uh, micromobility to encompass all of these sub 500 kilogram personal transportation devices. And what he talks about really is the unbundling of the car and the fact that uh, in the United States, trips between zero and two miles, he's presenting as a, as a trillion dollar opportunity for these uh, new players to come in and essentially take over the role of cars for intra-urban uh, and suburban journeys. So I think it's it's an enormously interesting space. But Mark, you pointed out the other day that uh, there's, a, there's a perspective that these things are seen as toys. And I think that plays right into the disruption narrative. The car industry is not taking these things particularly seriously, at least publicly at the moment. But I think they do present a real threat. Do you know, I, a couple of years ago, I drove the Renault Tweezy. Now, the Tweezy has the little three-wheel. It's got a little carbon fibre monocockpit. It was super safe. It was so much fun. It was like you had got this little guy off a roller coaster and you were driving it around on its own. Woo! Like, it was so much fun. And you could, and it was like pillion-style passenger. So, it was enclosed. It was waterproof. So cool. And, of course, all of our road regulations forbid anything like that. Being on the road, it can't be on the footpath, it's too big. But, I mean, that thing, because the thing about electrical bikes, my husband just trialled one into the city this morning from Marin to San Francisco. It's like an hour drive. And the thing had lost almost all of its charge. Brand new bike by the time he was in because of the hills. And he's gutted. And he's like, oh, I'll have to try. He'll be on to his fourth trial after this to find the right bike. Right? But something like the Tweezy that has the rainproofness, the ability to carry an extra person, I feel like those little iterations that sort of came and went and maybe need to come back again are what we need, but then we're going to need a whole lot of regulation to allow that to exist in cities. So in the same way that we're seeing this diversity in fuels, where we're going to have petrol on one side and then maybe hydrogen in the middle and then electric on the far side, are we then going to see this diversity of platforms where we're going to see you know, unicycles and then bicycles and then trikes and then sort of all the way up the scale? If we're talking about a trillion-dollar market, and that's just in the United States, Drew, if you're right, right? If we're talking about that trillion-dollar market, is that, Sally, why we heard um, Marcy from Ford 
Tell us that Ford had recently made an investment in a bike company. Well, they're all making investments in bike and scooter companies. And then interestingly, some of them are divesting themselves of those same scooters and bikes. You know, it's a very funny, like, I don't think the car companies have quite thought through what it is they want on that final journey. Because for many of us, the idea of getting on a bike or something that's open to the weather, if I'm dressed for the office or I'm whipping around, you know, I'm not necessarily wearing the gear that enables me to ride a bike with any amount of joy or or, um, efficiency. You know, so I think they were investing in what seemed obvious in the scooters and the bikes, but I'm not convinced that that is the end game. I think the end game has to be something that allows us the level of protection and sort of enclosure that we want if we're in work clothes, we're trying to get from point A to point B. There's so much here around how the car is changing us at the same time that we're changing the car. Because when you make a point about, you know, are you going to work in your fine clothes and in in the open in on a bicycle, we may actually end up changing the way we dress for work as a result because of that, because we're doing this. Although I admit, no one's going to want to do that when it's raining. No one's going to want to do that when it's snowing out or when it's it's freezing cold. Although I saw people in Detroit when it was minus eight riding scooters around the city, which I thought was madness. Can I input also, I think it's interesting that right now we are still fixated on the vehicle as something with wheels because I actually feel that in this new frontier of transportation, particularly the last mile or two kilometres or whatever you want to call it, I reckon we're going to see some robotic beasts pop up. And I wouldn't be surprised if sooner or later you'll be riding. So you could ride a mechanical horse. You could be on an alpha dog. Like there's actually no reason in this last mile transportation that you'll necessarily be on wheels. Let's just put that out there. Together, the move to autonomy and the transition to electric vehicles, and as we've seen, it's actually much more than electric, they add up to this momentous transformation in the experience of the car. Over the next billion cars, we're going to redefine what it means to go for a spin, and that's the topic for our next episode of The Next Billion Cars. The Next Billion Cars was written and presented by Mark Pesci, Sally Domingues, and Drew Smith, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, Andrew Smith, and Sally Dominguez thanking you for listening. <laughs>